everyone, and welcome to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public sector and how it serves the Australian community. My name is David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. As we begin today's program, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we are meeting today, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the ongoing contribution they make to the life of our city and this region. I'd also like to acknowledge the custodians of all the lands from where anybody listening to this podcast today is joining us from. So today we're interrupting our normal publishing schedule to bring you part two of our building capability discussion with Dr. Rachel Bacon, the Deputy Secretary of APS Reform, and Dr. Shubo Banerjee, the Deputy Commissioner and Head of the APS Academy and Capability at the Australian Public Service Commission. If you haven't listened yet to part one, please, it's in your best interest to go back and listen to part one, because what it'll do is give you the context to this further conversation. And the reason, in fact, that we've got a part two is that because part one and part two together ran for about an hour. And as regular listeners would know, we generally try to keep it around the half an hour mark. But it was such a compelling conversation, we couldn't stop it. And I'm sure those of you who have listened to part one would agree with me. And to those of you who haven't, please, if you jump back before you start again, um, that will make a whole lot more sense. Now, in part two, we turn our attention to some of the mechanisms that are supporting capability uplift across the Australian public service, including the Capability Reinvestment Fund and the new in-house consulting team. Now, Rachel and Shubo are also sharing some of their top tips on how to drive capability uplift as a leader and a worker in the Australian public service. Let's jump back into the conversation. Look, I want to jump into some of the specifics, as you mentioned before, that there's a lot going on at the APS reform team there, but in terms of the capability review program, the the capability reinvestment fund, what is that? Yeah, so there's a few things we're doing that are specific APS reform initiatives on the agenda. Uh, The capability reinvestment fund uh, is essentially a way of trying to draw out and support innovation across the service. Um, So the interesting thing about the fund is rather than kind of say through a budget process, we've got these 10 projects that we want to launch um, on capability. We've actually designed um, what is essentially an internal grants type program. That's the model, um, which says that, okay, so we had $10 million for round one of a capability reinvestment fund round, funding round. Uh, And let's actually go out to the service and let's see what the service comes up with um, against some broad, I guess, parameters and and clarity around the objectives we're trying to achieve and the priority areas we want to achieve them in. what, what's, what are the innovations that departments and agencies who are working on this stuff every day and actually seeing the need? It's kind of like, you know, in some ways a... a a more complex version of a suggestion box with some money attached in a way. Yeah. Um, but we basically went out to the service with some some funding guidelines that had clear objectives of the types of capability we were after. We spoke to a lot of people um, and it kind of had quite a collaborative approach with departments and agencies who had a good idea 
and we worked with them and partnered with them to kind of shape their ideas so they could be the most competitive. Mm -hmm. uh, then uh, a group of us um, and Carolyn Walsh from IPA helped us with this. Uh, we're very grateful for that. Uh, Shubo and I and other colleagues um, as a panel actually looked through uh, all of the different applications that we got from the service of innovative ideas of what we can do to, to build capability in ways where it's not just gonna benefit one department or one part of a department, but part of the requirement that we put into the guidelines, uh, a precondition for funding, is that these would be collaborative projects that benefited a number of agencies, if not the whole service, in terms of how capability could be built. So we've actually got um, 10 projects involving 14 agencies um, that have come out of round one of the fund. Uh, and they're really diverse. They go to things like, you know, how to promote culturally and linguistically diverse capability. Um, so looking at called capability um, uh, through development of a digital learning package. There's a project around building futures analysis capability across the service. Uh, some really interesting work going on across a number of agencies around micro-credentialing and oh, yeah. how you actually do micro-credentials uh, within the APS. Um, we've got um, a gender equality analysis um, project, a project on how you actually, through um, investing in cohort-based development, develop Indo-Pacific um, capabilities um, to support Australia's place in the Indo-Pacific. Um, how you build cultural competency in the application of Commonwealth grant rules and guidelines, particularly when you're dealing with First Nations um, applicants uh, and communities, how you can uplift evaluation capability. There's um, some data capability projects, but some really innovative and interesting approaches to collaboratively building capability across departments and agencies. What I really like about this fund um, is that it asks people on the ground who could see a capability need based on the work that they did and how they could do that work better and achieve better outcomes for government, for the Australian public. They were identifying good ideas um, based out of that lived experience. And we had a competitive process to basically prioritise um, those innovations. And that's where we landed. When do we see the results for some of that? Or when do we see early results for some of those? Well, the interesting projects. thing about capability, um, so the short answer is we've got uh, projects that will run over a couple of years um, with evaluation requirements built in. So there's the kind of process answer. But the interesting thing about capability uplift uh, is sometimes it takes a while, I think, to see the full impact of your capability investment. Um, Yes, someone can say, I have acquired these capabilities and I am using them in my job a couple of weeks after I do a training course, for example. Uh, but some of the capability we're talking about here has second order, third order, fourth order effects in terms of if you lift the capability, say you lift the capability of a whole lot of public servants um, to do, um, do place-based approaches better. Um, and then you get public servants who can, in response to government priorities, go out and do a much better job of actually um, putting, uh, enabling the development of um, place-based approaches or agreements in a particular community. The implications or the impacts of doing that well, you could see in 25 years' time. Hmm. 
So if you take, you know, an example like the Barclay Regional deal around Tennant Creek in the Northern Territory, um, you've got a series, a bunch of public servants who've worked really hard um, with the locals in that community to think about what are your priorities um, and how do we actually enable and align investment effort across three levels of government, Commonwealth, um, Nor- uh, Northern Territory government, local government, mm-hmm. um, to align investment effort against community priorities. Um, some of the things that are being rolled out in that regional deal will have intergenerational impacts and, and benefits. Mm. So it's it's kind of... It, it, the benefit um, can be next week and in 25 years' time. Mm. The thing that I say about capability to my team is that once you've, you've, um, once you've in, built uh, and grown someone's capability, you can't take it away. It's, it's kind of locked in. You can't unknow stuff. So in that sense, I think uh, the, the investment is an enduring investment for as long as public servants are contributing in some way to public purpose. So for you, Sherba, that must be an exciting initiative. It's very exciting. And I I think one of the things that's really striking, and uh, uh, Rachel was kind enough to say some nice things about our work together before, but one of the things that I really enjoyed working with her and other wonderful colleagues together was an enduring interest in what capability building meant at a team level. That that to to care about your team is to care about their development and to look after a team is to look after where they're going uh, and support them uh, professionally, personally, in their aspirations for what they want to do. And I, I think that's something that uh, we, I guess, have had the opportunity to do at a small scale together in other roles, but now it feels like that's something that is kind of writ large. We're, we're really thinking about to take care for people in the public service is a way, it, it, one of the best ways to show that is really to support them in, in where they want to go in terms of their professional journey. There's no doubt that it is of course, uh, an immensely fulfilling thing to feel like you are doing a good job and you're getting better at your job and that your manager supports you to do that and then the broader agency environment uh, supports that as well. So it does feel like there are some really kind of foundational values at play here that are being uh, writ large in that kind of broader reform agenda. That's really exciting. It's uh, it, it's the kind of public service I think we all hope to be part of is, is a public service that does take that care and does take that pride in trying to trying to be better at what we do and trying to be better individually and, and collectively in serving the government and, and through serving the government, the people. And another very practical example of not only is it your manager, your, your agency, your secretary kind of backing you in to build capability, um, but the system doing it as well. So a practical example, David, you mentioned before the in-house consulting model. Mm-hmm. So uh, the Australian Government Consulting Service um, launched uh, 1 July, um, starting its first projects now. Uh, which is pretty exciting, and that's a major initiative of Minister Gallagher under the APS reform agenda. Uh, The way that we are choosing to implement the in-house consulting model, um, we did a lot of design work, and we made a choice very early on. Uh, You could choose to deliver 
uh, an in-house consulting model in a way that does not have a focus on uplifting capability. It could have a focus just on delivering really high um, quality projects and consulting services for the agencies who use the in-house consulting model. Um, and that would still be, you know, job well done, you know, yes, we're delivering high quality consulting services. We made the choice not to do that. We made the choice to deliver the in-house consulting model with the twin objective of also delivering capability uplift. And that is hardwired into the way we've designed the model. What that actually means in practice is that uh, the Australian Government Consulting Service is going to have a group of you know, highly trained uh, consultants who are expert in using a toolkit of methodologies and tools to be able to deliver consulting services to their clients. Hmm. The choices you make about what tools go into uh, that bag of kit that the consultants carry on every single project really matters. It matters in part because with those highly trained consultants taking their kind of toolkit of methodologies, part of the objective and part of the requirement of every single consulting project is not only do they deliver the product they've been asked to, to and engaged to deliver as part of the consulting service, they have to deliver a capability uplift alongside the project. So what that means is they've got a design when they're scoping up the project with their client, they need to engage with their client and decide what kind of capability uplift is right for you and how do we deliver that capability uplift uh, to your team in a way that's enduring alongside the, the consulting um, so they're deliverables joint. themselves. So they're sol outcomes. solving the problem lifting the capability so the yep. people can do it themselves. That's right. Next so yeah, exactly. And that's generally not part of no. the private consulting model. No. So it's one way where the government consulting service um, is, stands apart and has personally, I think, a fantastic service offer because not only are we going to deliver your project, um, we're also going to deliver a capability uplift that we co-design with you as part of the consulting engagement. And not only do we um, uplift capability one project at a time through the Australian Government Consultants, but also we work very closely with Shubo and the Academy because the methodologies in the bag of kit that the in-house consultants have is actually then reflective of the types of methodologies and tools that the Academy is teaching as part of APS Craft. And so you almost then have a self-reinforcing system approach where your consultants are going out, people getting on the job learning and experience, and then you're reinforcing that same capability uplift through the things that you were teaching um, through the APS Craft offerings that the Academy delivers. So we had the choice to do that or not do that. We put to, to government, we think you should hardwire capability uplift as part of what you are delivering in this APS reform initiative. Minister said, absolutely, let's do that. Um, and we're taking that same approach right across the APS reform agenda. How we approach everything in implementing APS reform is with the twin objective of capability uplift. So we're looking at every single initiative on that reform agenda, um, whether it's a capability initiative or not, and saying, how can you deliver that in a way that uplifts capability? And so we've built a network uh, of over 100 um, APS reform uh, initiative leads um, at the BAM1 and EL2 level. These are the guys in departments and agencies right across the service who are delivering APS reform initiatives. And we are asking every single one of them, 
what's your capability outcome alongside delivery of your initiative. And the reason we've done that very deliberately as part of the like hardwiring capability uplift into the implementation and transformation approach for APS reform is that to have enduring outcomes, you need some kind of change in culture, mindset or capability to have APS out, um, reform outcomes and principles endure. And so we've gone hard on capability. That's the only way to get it to stick, right? There, there's a lot of talk about various phases of uh, reform in the APS. Some have stuck more than others. And the empirics are pretty clear that the ones that stick are ones that uh, have some degree of self-reinforcing culture change, uh, expectation change, and change in capability to do your work. It, 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 It can't be an entirely externally imposed thing. It's got to be a way of making our work better. And I think uh, a really fundamental premise of APS reform is it's a way of making our work better. And, and that is really the loop back to that's why we're so, so determined to think about capability in all of these reform in- initiatives. And that's really, Ra- Rachel's been driving that from the start to think about that as a kind of self-reinforcing engine of trying to push the whole thing forward and give it a degree of making it stick over time. How is that changing the APS Academy every time Rachel walks into your office with another... Another idea. <laughs> He's very patient with me. <laughs> well, they're all terrific it ideas. Happens, it happens Shuba, often. <laughs> they are all terrific ideas. Uh, so, look, it is a, it is a generational opportunity to, to try and think about a system-wide approach to some things that are highlighted over and over again in these set-piece reviews. And so the Academy was really set up to provide a whole-of-service response uh, to trying to support capability across across the service. Uh, Certainly the early models were nothing like this, uh, uh, really. Oh, well, I I think, David, we, we always had in mind that it would need to be much bigger than the commission. The commission would sure. need to run something on behalf of the service. That that was always the premise. And, and when we did a prior interview about it, we definitely talked about that. I think what's exciting and interesting and different is really leaning into the networked bit. We had that great conversation earlier about specialist cells of expertise, about generosity of sharing, trying to have a more kind of disaggregated sense of how to access excellence and how to really practically draw on that to be able to do your work better. I think that's really exciting. And and that is in the implementation of the academy, that that it is a, a different form of trying to conceptualise this. You know, sometimes when people hear the word academy, they think of a bricks and mortar institution or a central delivery shop. We are really about supporting the system as a whole. And once you start thinking about supporting the system as a whole at this scale, it's got to be exactly this kind of flexible, adaptable, knowledge broker kind of way of thinking about the world. That's really exciting. I I really do think that to be a learning organisation at that scale... Uh, dealing in practical wisdom, in in how you do things uh, really on the ground, I think we're at the cutting edge of practice on that. Like to to really think about achieving excellence on that is a really exciting, ambitious thing. And I think we've talked previously about the APS aspiring to be world-class, aspiring to excellence. 
I think in this domain about being a learning organisation, being self-reflective and being able to improve over time, I genuinely think we can do something really exciting and innovative and amazing. Now, there are a lot more things that we could talk about. And I think we need to come back really and have another conversation because there is, you know, the relationships um, with the academia and the APS and, and the uh, academy as well. Um, and there are other elements, um, but we could talk all day, but we, we probably need to uh, give the audience um, a bit of time because we've probably gone a little bit longer than normal. But what I do want to give you the opportunity to do um, is the audience is really uh, of this podcast are people who are you are looking um, to make change you are looking to engage you are looking to think different you are looking to inspire what words of inspiration and aspiration might you have for the people listening as to the role that they can play in this you know this very important critical agenda of of capability building and I'll start with you Rachel uh, so if I'm thinking about how do I do this well um, and kind of reflecting on my own leadership practice in terms of building capability, it's something I've been thinking about for a little while, but kind of three things that I would hone in on. One is invest the time. And I think there's some really interesting data that's kind of coming out comparing in the private sector, in private sector organisations, how much time do leaders invest in building capability and then when you compare that to the public sector, how much time do public sector leaders spend investing in capability? Um, the, some of the figures that, that people have talked to me about is that we do it less in the public sector. We invest less time as leaders in building capability. I think in the private sector, there's some interesting data on a very clear productivity uplift from investing significantly in capability. Is there a reason for that? With as to why there was less invested? Uh, I don't know. Um, I don't have the reasons at my fingertips on why we would invest less, but I think when we think about, well, what drives you uh, as, what drives public sector leaders and what do we need to respond to? Um, the, the connection in the private sector between the profit motive, productivity outcomes and capability, there's quite clear direct lines between all of those things. You can see the data, you can see the productivity uplift. You know, uh, I was looking at some data just, you know, in preparation for coming here and you can see numbers in the 30s and 40s of if you get that kind of capability investment at that level in your organisation, your uptick in productivity is really quite significant. We've got um, many more drivers and variables in the public sector. We've got 24-7 media cycles. Uh, you know, we've got a whole range of different, you know, we're um, responsible to ministers, to the parliament, to the public uh, in terms of outcomes. So the drivers are really quite complex and variable and you do not necessarily have a very straight line. Um, between capability investment and all of the outcomes we're trying to manage uh, in, in a complex public sector environment. But investing the time, we know that it gets a return um, and it's how do we carve out the time to invest in uh, building the capability of our people. I think there's something really important in stewardship and with stewardship as a new value that, that's currently before parliament at the moment in the Public Service Act Amendment Bill, thinking about how do we how do we 
uh, how would we live stewardship as a value? I think capability investment is part of the, the way that we do that. The second kind of insight, I think, is that to really do a good job of investing in the capability of our people, uh, we need to be prepared to have meaningful and sometimes hard conversations. Um, we're all human. Uh, sometimes uh, to support someone or coach someone or uh, support someone to lift their capability, unlock their potential, um, you do need to have those deeper, meaningful conversations at times um, as supervisors, as leaders of people, and that requires vulnerability. So I think there's something about the leadership at all levels across the service, uh, perhaps needing to get a little more comfortable with vulnerability to be able to give ourselves to building the capability of others. Um, and the last thing uh, is to, to kind of be um, aware uh, of the tools that are available to help you uh, in your capability uplift endeavour and be prepared to use the tools that are available because the types of things that Shiro talks about in the academy, there's, there's a lot of stuff available uh, and how do we make sure that we're aware and actually making, making use of the tools that are on, are on offer across the service. Good advice. Shubo. Always difficult going second, David, <laughs> particularly after such a tremendous list. Uh, and, and what I had in mind uh, does have a bit of over... Can, can I start with one observation, though, which is um, in the Thody review, both in the review document and uh, some speeches that David Thody gave at the time, he talked very specifically about the level of expenditure on L&D in the APS, and he was really struck by how low it was compared to private sector benchmarks. Now, to start with, he found it very difficult, the panel found it very difficult to get a really good handle on what is being spent, and we're doing some work on that at the moment. They they expressed a, a high degree of frustration that you couldn't even really get a sense of kind of like-for-like like comparisons around expenditure, but he was pretty convinced that it was low and it was dramatically lower than he was used to seeing in comparable professional firms. And he expressed himself very firmly on that point and particularly uh, the, the idea of just how much political scrutiny there is on every dollar of L&D expenditure. Uh, of course, we're accountable through uh, to the government and to the parliament around expenditure of public money. Of course, that has to be done responsibly and effectively. But the, the Saudi commentary was really every single dollar is treated as if it's an indulgence or as if it's somehow, uh, you know, beyond, you know, beyond what is reasonable. And he, w he was very strident about that. And particularly, uh, he called out that uh, when you invest in uh, programs for leaders, that is by its nature intensive, that is by its nature more expensive, and so the, the per participant numbers look, uh, look higher. Uh, but uh, he again made the point that in the private sector there is a very clear sense of just how important it is to get your leadership right, mm. both in an instrumental sense for running the organisation well, but also in an, an, in an ethical and value sense to make sure that people are aligned to purpose in the right way. And so, he, again, he was really uh, adamant about that. There's a bunch of stuff on the public record where he was uh, very clear about his sense that we were a long way behind comparable benchmarks. In terms of... Uh, more direct advice for, for listeners, uh, and there is a bit of overlap with Rachel's list. I, I started with intentional. I think it is really important to be intentional 
about capability building and, and learning and development or more broadly doing your job better over time. I, I think people do want to do that and you want to set an environment where that is the kind of team that you have and thinking about that at a very local level is incredibly important. And what, what's related to that then is what can be done at a local level. You know, you, you want to be curious. You want to be outward looking. You want to see what's around. You want to see what gathers people's interest. Having a discussion once a week about something that caught, that catches someone's attention. Doing that at different levels in the team where the grad or more junior people can talk about different perspectives. Often they're reading different things or, you know, uh, consuming different podcasts to 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 people uh, else uh, at higher levels in the team so really being intentional being curious and then really trying to take advantage of the range of different development mechanisms that are out there I do still think and it's part of this kind of broader pressure it's the performance pressure it's the busyness it's very very difficult to step back and uh, really commit the time and effort to be able to uh, to be able to develop in that way, leaders are often uh, very very much guilty around this. You know, you've got to set the right example. That if you want your team to be able to take the time, you've got to take the time and, and make sure that you show that you're role modelling that behaviour as well. So I think uh, it's a combination of formal and informal learning, a whole range of different things. But in the end, it is just a more fulfilling way to be. It's a more fulfilling way to be at work. And it's a more fulfilling way to work with purpose. Well, best of luck to both of you on uh, this exciting venture. And it, it will never stop. It will never end. But it sounds like there is so much going on, so much moving in the right direction, so much opportunity, so much optimism. So it's great to hear um, from the leadership that the APS reform as it relates to capability, is certainly making great progress. So congratulations. And thanks for coming in to uh, work with Purpose today. So there you go. The end of part two of a wonderful conversation with Dr. Rachel Bacon and Dr. Shubo Banerjee. And isn't it great when such nice people, but intelligent people, hardworking people, people who are committed to making Australia a better place by building a more effective public service when they're prepared to dedicate uh, their careers to this great work and this great mission that they have. So uh, very grateful to both Rachel Bacon and to Shubo Banerjee for coming on. And as I suggested during the podcast, we'll be back uh, to discuss the other pillars of APS reform, but also to continue to talk to Shubo about capability building and how it is changing the Australian public service. It will be an ongoing topic of discussion. So if you could, I would and certainly everyone at IPA ACT and Content Group would be very grateful if indeed you could rate or review the program on your favourite podcast listening app because what that does is help us to be found. And we do have lots of reviews on lots of different sites and so that's why the program has been so successful. So please, if you do have time, a quick rating or review that would be great. And certainly if you have any ideas for programs, if you have any suggestions about guests, uh, you can email events at act.ipa.org.au or if indeed you'd just like to catch up with other photos and other materials that are uh, related to the program, you can follow them at Content Group or 
IPA ACT on LinkedIn. So there's always plenty of additional bits and pieces that are there for your value. Now, Work With Purpose is produced in collaboration uh, between Content Group and the Institute of Public Administration of Australia, ACT, supported by our good friends at the Australian Public Service Commission. So uh, we'll be back at the same time next week with another episode of Work With Purpose. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining us, and it's bye for now. Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission. 